Welcome back to another episode of Fantastic Voyage, the David Bowie podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm John. We're coming to you today from isolation once again. The, uh, the terrible bug that's going around has finally caught up to me and, and my family. So I've been quarantining for the last... Uh... It's been funny because someone got it, then I got it, and someone else didn't have it. It was, you know, various levels of trying to distance within a house is not easy. I, I was hiding out in the basement for a while, but now like we've kind of all got it. So seems unavoidable we're, when you're in the just, same house. Yeah. It's unless it's you really have a tough. house big enough where you have like an East and West wing. Like, I don't think it's really avoidable. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and with a two and a half year old that needs yeah. care when, you know, yeah, it's tough, yeah. but yeah. So we're, we're back like it's 2021 how we started this whole thing, doing a virtual episode. Um, actually, the second episode in a row we did virtual. We had Mike Munzer from Evolution of Horror on our last episode, which was The Hunger, which brings us to what we're talking about today, another movie. Uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Uh, 1983 film directed by Nagisa Oshima. Uh, very renowned Japanese filmmaker, from what I understand. He's, uh, he saw David Bowie performing in The Elephant Man, right? That's how right. Bowie got to do this role, which is interesting because I think we both agreed that watching, even though all we really have are clips of David Bowie in The Elephant Man, when you watch him in that, you go, oh, okay, uh, maybe he's limited in, in spots as an actor, but he's definitely not just a music guy doing movie or doing acting. He is a, a good actor. You know, like it, the elephant yeah. man's not an easy role to play. So I'm not surprised to hear that someone saw that and went, oh, yeah, I, I can use him in my movie. Yeah. Um, and maybe to cut to the chase. Yeah. Bowie has shown that he can act before. But in this film, it, it might be his best work, I, I think, or at least to date from what we've covered. And we've covered some some solid performances of him, including, like you said, Elephant Man, Ball, um, man who fell to earth is he's great in it just to gigolo uh maybe not his fault but uh, it wasn't you know i wouldn't show that uh as uh, the demonstration of his acting uh abilities to anybody by any means guilty by association i think he went yeah he gives he blames himself for even just being involved in the first place right but this one as we'll get to uh throughout this episode he his talents are on full display um yeah it's uh it's a really had you seen this movie before before I watching it this time yeah neither have i it was really interesting i found it i subscribed to the criterion collection it's like a streaming service we have here it's really cool it's you ever wonder where all the old movies are in you know this day and age it's like either it's new or you have to have an old vhs player and yeah. or a dvd player and and buy it right because a lot of old movies aren't streaming on like Netflix and you know, you go to classic movies on, on Netflix or crave and it's like the 80 stuff. Like that's not classic. <laughs> and even if you wanted to, you know, get them illegally, that's even right. tougher for, for like some yeah. older movies. Right. Cause there's just not as big of a, as a demand for them. Or in this case, movies with subtitles. <laughs> Sometimes you can't, <laughs> you get it and you have to kind of piece it together. I watched dances with wolves, which is like a four hour movie. That's not in English without subtitles, thinking that that was part of the art. And like three hours in, I realized that there's supposed to be subtitles and I just oh. had them turned off. 
Well, and I was like, oh. So I have, I have a question. Were subtitles supposed to be in this movie or not? <laughs> okay, I, so it got you too. Well, I watched it on two different websites. I didn't watch it in one viewing, just time constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on which site I was using to watch it, some of them had the subtitles for when they were speaking in Japanese and some of them didn't. Some of them, it was only the English. Oh, so, I see. Yeah, I, I, I think I, it's it's I supposed know. to. Yeah, see, that's we didn't so, deal with that before, but now this is what we have to deal yeah, with. Yeah, so there were like, there were some deal. scenes where I was, I knew everything that was being said in Japanese. And right. then there were some, you know, during the second half of the movie, whenever I switched websites, I can't remember exactly when it was, but there were some times when I didn't. Yeah, so. so I think it was supposed to. So you may have missed some maybe crucial dialogue. Well, luck, luckily, Mr. Lawrence was there as like the mediator, the translator. So he would usually right. repeat what was said in English if we weren't supposed to know what was said. So there was at least yeah. that. Yeah, the, the titular character uh, played by Tom Conti. He's he was like a captured he was a POW as well. Should we maybe get into the, should we give a brief synopsis so that these characters have a bit of context? Sure. Um, so the movie starts uh, and well, it actually starts with two soldiers kind of being uh, belittled for having relations with each other or what, at least one had planned to have relations with the other or something like that. And uh, this very strict POW camp with very conservative views is kind of, you know, shaming them for that. And right after that, Bowie gets captured and he's a, he, what was his rank? He was, he was like a high ranking official. He was like a, is he a captain? Maybe I think he was a major anyway. Yeah. So he, he gets captured and put to trial and the, this up and coming rising kind of, I think he's a captain, Yanoi, played by uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto, who is a uh, a Japanese rock star, or ro- I don't know if you call it rock, but pop, like music composer. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of becomes fascinated with with Bowie, um, who's, yeah, major Jack Selliers. It's a major, yeah. Major. And uh, he kind of, he's like defying all of these uh you know, conservative views and, and very uh, maybe not necessarily the conservatism, but he's defying this like traditional sense of pride and like uh, kind of shame. Like he's, he's not ashamed to have been caught as a POW. He, He actually is, you know, he did it for to save the villagers or something like that. And anyway, this, this young and up and coming captain, you know, he, he becomes kind of fascinated with him. So they, they're going to kill him. They, they don't, they well, they pay a play a horrible prank on him. They they line him up in a shooting gallery, draw their weapons and fire either and miss him or blanks or something. And then like Bo is sweating and he he says like, oh, that was a good one. That's <laughs> a good one. Me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <This is> great. <laughs> we'll get to the acting of that in a moment because he was great. And I'll, I'll try to wrap up this this summary. <laughs> I'm terrible at this. So they keep him alive for no particular reason other than this captain is kind of fascinated with him and wants to kind of have him around maybe. And this other high ranking official has kind of got a similar view and he's kind of interested in him too. Uh, but one of them, the, the one played by Sakamoto, you know, he kind of, it becomes kind of a battle between is there any kind of romanticism in this fascination or not? And that's kind of it. Towards the end, uh, eventually the Yanoi 
kind of goes crazy dealing with these, uh, you know, he's kind of wrestling with this idea and he, he snaps at the end. He thinks that all the POWs are faking their injuries and their illnesses. Yeah. And one of them literally drops dead in front of him. And he totally loses it when Bowie uh, grabs him and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And he, he kind of just passes out and that's it. And a new guy comes in, replaces him and does kill Bowie's character. And Sanders. I think that that kind of all but confirmed that there was like a sexual tension between definitely Bowie yeah and, and but yeah because and I, I was kind of wondering throughout the film like does Bowie realize like uh, does, does Jack Selliers realize that this guy's infatuated with him and I think that kiss at the end all but confirms that he knew yeah. all along yeah yeah and yeah the <laughs> yeah it's there, there isn't much to the plot it's kind of just they're keeping him alive for the sole purpose of being fascinated with him which fits right into you know why they cast a guy like David Bowie. I mean, yeah, we're well, all the, fascinated with him. The casting job with Bowie, I thought was uh, fantastic because I, I'm sure you read that it was Paul Mayersberg is the one who co-wrote this movie with Oshima. And yeah. Mayersberg was the writer, like the only writer of The Man Who Fell to Earth. So he, he had not only experience with Bowie, but, you know, he, he knew kind of everything about him. He knew his strengths. He knew his limitations. And, and he actually... Uh, I was reading that he actually wrote the script with Bowie in mind. And it was the no. first time he'd actually ever written a script and written a character with a specific actor in mind. And David Bowie, he kind of plays like this. He's a born leader in the movie, right? He's a very captivating person. He catches and demands the attention of people very quickly. He attracts well, Captain, you know, sexually from the jump. And I think, you know, just as he was a captivating person and like this sort of born showman in real life, you can see where this role was tailored specifically for him. Yeah. He even almost becomes like the POW, like leader. I think, you was planning on making him the leader. There was an existing, like kind of like, I guess, spokesperson for the camp, like from the English side, we didn't even mention. Yeah. So this is world war two. Um, the English POWs are captured in somewhere in the South Pacific. It doesn't say where, uh, mm -hmm. but it's a Japanese army that has them. And yeah, Bowie is kind of becomes their de facto leader, despite them, them actually having somebody officially who's like their spokesperson or like the person kind of in charge or like, a, I don't even know what that other guy was. The guy with the mustache. I don't even know his name, but Hick Hicksley Hicksley. Right. Yeah. Um, That's the guy yeah. that Bowie, Bowie saves <clears throat> at the end by kissing, you know, he right. saves Hicksley. They're going to execute Hicksley and replace him. With Bowie, but then Bowie, for I mean, we'll get to maybe that later. Why Bowie does that? It's a very interesting part of the story. But yeah, Bowie is effectively saves that guy's life and has his own taken in, in place of him. Yeah. The so the the character Mr. Lawrence, the the translator, he was so the there was a book written a few years prior to the screenplay being written, and uh, you know I should look up his name because we we owe it to the writer. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Lawrence Vanderpost. So that was, uh, he was an actual POW in Japan during World War II. And he wrote the book that this film is, is based off of. And the point of view is from uh, Mr. Lawrence or whatever, Captain Lawrence, I don't, I don't know what his ranking was, but the, the translator. So that's kind of interesting that this is written from his point of view and kind of what he saw in the camp. And the 
yeah, the POW, the, the actual guy himself said that this was very autobiographical of his time there. So that it's kind of cool that is, I mean, it's not a true, I'm not sure how much truth there is to the actual plot or the actual story. If he saw this kind of stuff going on there, but definitely probably bled in. Well, and I think Mr. Lawrence, uh, that is probably the best character in the whole thing, in the whole movie. It, it's another good casting job. It was Tom Conti. I think you said was yeah. the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a bit of a surprise that he was a great, or that, that picking him was a good casting job because when you think about it, his talent as an actor, I think we could safely assume took a bit of a backseat when they casted him and that his, his bilingualism was the top priority, right? Because yeah. they, they need a guy who is fluent in both English and Japanese. That was the most integral part of his character. His character serves as like this mediator. He always tries to sympathize with both the with both of the the point of views the the english and the japanese so i i found it kind of interesting that he was the i guess he he was like the main character the movie's named after him and and he was great in the movie which like i said it's a bit of a surprise because they definitely didn't prioritize his his acting skills i mean i'm sure they didn't they wanted him to be a good actor but the bilingualism was definitely the the main thing with him yeah Especially if you're watching it without subtitles. Like I was. <laughs> so he was really important for me. Yeah. Well, although I guess, or for someone who could and, speak both languages and doesn't have subtitle or wait. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. And so it's funny because like we, he is kind of the main character and I think he is the best part of the movie, but you know, obviously we're here and we're talking about this movie because it's David Bowie. And I think one of the, the maybe little disadvantages of casting a guy like David Bowie in you know 1983 this megastar you know in a film about british and japanese relations post world war ii and all that is that he's an unavoidable elephant in the room you know that this film wants to highlight the clashing of these sort of two incompatible and stubborn cultures and the you know the, all the moral conflicts that come in a, a prisoner of war camp but bowie is probably gonna you know he's gonna steal the spotlight and dominate and the, yeah. the rhetoric and commentary on the movie you know everyone in 1983 was going you know oh did you see the new david bowie movie you know how was bowie in it you know what was bowie up to right and if you're if you're reading and watching press runs or interviews on this movie it's just going to be bowie dominating the, the press cycle but one of the advantages is you can cast bowie the megastar you know this, this very captivating figure and you can have a captivating character, which Jack Sellers is supposed to be. And you can use that to your advantage. And the scene in particular where this is maybe best outlined is right at the beginning when Bowie's character is introduced. There's a military trial about to take place and the Japanese courtroom members, they're all explaining who the next defendant is to Captain Yanoi. They, they tell him that this is an important case and that the defendant is a very difficult man. And there's this, this great buildup, there's tension built up, you know, something big is going to happen. And then when Bowie first enters the film, it's a back shot of him, right? You can't see his face, yeah. but you can see the, the back of his body, you can see his build, and you can see kind of like his hair. And it's enough for you to, to recognize him and, and gasp like, oh my God, that's David Bowie. And then the camera eventually switches to his face for this very dramatic close up. And there's, you know, another gasp like, oh my God, it is him. So yeah. I think that while there were roadblocks probably for having Bowie in the film, I I think that they use his advantages to their advantage. You know, that's a very exciting part of the movie and you can kind of only accomplish that with some of someone of Bowie's stature. I thought they played to his strengths 
as a as a casting job very very well and then right after that scene as he's kind of they just take like a recess or something they take a break they haven't decided what they're going to do with him yet and Bowie returns to like a cell type thing where he's being watched by two guards and he kind of puts his miming work on display. He starts to like kind of have this fictional final shave, final cigarette, uh, cup of tea. And he's kind of, he's just acting it out uh, as if he's like, he's actually shaving like with just his hands, like he's pretending and looking into a fake mirror and, you know, even Mm -hmm. like making that thing you do with your top lip and stuff (laughs) and tea. Oh, I'd love some tea. Thank you. takes a slow drag of a cigarette and then gets kind of marched to, you know, where they they tie him up in this big, huge shooting gallery type thing. He looks like he's about to get crucifixed. He's like Jesus Christ with his arms out like this. And then they, you know, they shoot blanks at him or something. And I'm surprised he didn't urinate himself. But he he looked stressed out after that. And he'd been cool and kind of calm up to that point. And then they show his face after. And it sh- it's, he did a great job of portraying a, a very... I don't even know what you'd call him very like assured person, but also, and and who's, who was very confident and very kind of content with everything that had happened up to that point. I mean, they said, Oh, it'll probably be the shooting gallery if it's taking this long, but he kind of doesn't show like, you know, he doesn't really show his cards too much as to how he's feeling, but you can just see that hint of like, Oh my God, I'm about to die as they're zooming in on his face as they're lining up and, you know, cocking their weapons at him. Uh, yeah, that was one of the best just, you know, sequences in this film is basically from that trial on to the the faux execution where they don't do it. I also uh, I really loved the uh, the dynamic between Sergeant Hara and Captain Yanoi because uh, Captain Yanoi at first. He, he seems to be the more rational of the Japanese soldiers, right? Whereas Sergeant Hara is like this, he's a more hard-nosed and bloodthirsty soldier. You know, he, he's skipping the chain of command and he's ordering executions behind, behind Yanoi's back. But as the film goes on, they kind of develop in the opposite direction, right? Like Yanoi yeah. goes from this very just and very rational leader to a guy that just loses it because of his sexual attraction to, to Sellers. He becomes this very super despicable character, especially when you mentioned it earlier, he orders the, uh, there's an execution going on and he, he orders the injured British soldiers to come out of their hospital beds and witness it. And yeah. one of them winds up succumbing to their wounds and all that. But then conversely, Sergeant Hara goes from this kind of vicious leader who orders beatings and suicides, you know, self-inflict, you know, self-suicides at the, uh, at the drop of a hat and then it all but all of a sudden he turns into this compassionate man he, he starts drinking sake and he gets all drunk and decides that he's santa claus and yeah. he winds up letting mr lawrence and david bowie's character jack selliers off of their death sentences he lets them off the hook he, he has like this sort of great redemption arc and, and i think that's a brilliant part of the movie because at least what i think what it's trying to show us is that war is kind of just this manifested madness like you're your feelings of hatred towards your fellow man is all artificial, right? Like Sergeant Hara, Mm -hmm. he wasn't a bad person. It turned out that deep down he had this good heart in him. And Yanoi, you know, he was supposed to hate the British, but he's in a war against them. But then he becomes attracted to this British man and and he's a good person, but his repressed homosexuality is kind of what makes him snap. You know, he's conflicted and he's angry and he's frustrated because of what's imposed on him. And that's what causes him to eventually go off the deep end. So I thought it was a great sort of uh, 
depiction of war and how it's, you know, we do really all and, and should love each other, but it's kind of, it, we're all, we're put up against each other for, you know, reasons that aren't our own choices. Yeah. And another kind of underlying, maybe not totally underlying, but another theme throughout this, this film is the, the Japanese uh, soldiers there, how they deal with, with shame or with guilt. It's very present uh, in, in the film. They're kind of asking the, a couple of times they, they ask the British soldiers, like, don't you feel guilt for this? Like, you know, don't you feel like you, wouldn't you rather die than be captured as a POW? They're very like a Japanese would never be caught. You know, a soldier would never be caught like in the first mm-hmm. place, but if he were to, he would fall on the sword, which is happening a lot. There's a lot of belly cutting as I kind of thought of it, but it's called, uh, it's called Sapuka. Sapuka. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, but it's kind of like this, an honorable way for like a samurai to die as opposed to if you're if you think you're going to be killed you you kill yourself before possibly dying from either your enemy or getting tortured and uh, captured and tortured or anything like that and uh sakamoto's character captain Inoue, he has this uh he reveals to to lawrence the the interpreter that he has uh, kind of sur- not survivor's guilt, but absenteeism guilt, maybe from the uh, there was this incident in Japan where there was like this failed coup, uh, I guess, early on in, in in the war where these, you know, rebels in Japan tried to overthrow the Japanese government and they killed some major players like they killed some former prime ministers and some high ranking officials. And Yanoi says, I should have been there. I, I was off somewhere else and I should have been there and I should have died with them. So he's kind of maybe got a bit of survivor's guilt despite not even really being there. So it, it and that's kind of, it comes at an interesting time too. It kind of comes at the time where he starts to make that transition that you talked about between being this, the, the, the strict guy, you know, or not the strict guy, sorry. The, the rational the, kind of guy. The rational, yeah. yeah, the rational kind of guy to where he starts to, not lose his mind, but he starts to just have these struggles internally. And then that's kind of like the first hint of he isn't just this stone cold, you know, he's got no emotion in the game. No, he does have feelings and he does have all the things that he's hadn't been portrayed to have up until that point. So I thought that was kind of a pivotal moment in the, in the film. And there's a lot of that sort of regret and redemption, right? Because there's uh, Bowie also has a two because he there's flashbacks. To, yeah, this is good. Yeah, because he he uh, he doesn't help his little brother when he has the chance. I think his brother's got a hunchback or something, right? So he gets picked yeah. on in school. In school, and Bowie had the chance to sort of you know stop it and he didn't and he has regrets for it which is also very interesting as it pertains to david bowie is the person they casted because david bowie was giving interviews around this period and saying he felt that he did this was very there was parallels between this and his literal brother not just his with brother terry, in the movie, yeah but with his half brother terry who was you know we've talked before was schizophrenic and apparently he had a hunchback too i didn't know that oh wow but I, I i don't think who knows bowie's known for not giving the most accurate answers but i was just <laughs> reading the nicholas Pegg book and it Bowie said that his brother got teased for very similar things and Bowie didn't step up to the plate when maybe he could have. So that's another very well-written part of the movies when Bowie, he, he, he lives with this regret for not stepping up to the plate when he could have saved his brother. So he finally at the end sacrifices his own life to save Captain Hicksley because he knows why I had the chance before and I didn't take it. I'm going to take the chance now. And he 
right before the execution of Hicksley, he kisses yeah. Captain Yanoi, as we kind of briefly alluded to earlier, and that causes Yanoi to faint or whatever. And then they wind up killing Bowie instead. They bury him. It looks like they're going to bury him alive, but then they, they just bury him. Uh, With his from, head above. Yeah, everything well, up everything except for his head and then he just is just standing there with his head exposed and he just dies from i guess from starving and from heat exhaustion or something so you just what a way to go well it was very similar to the creep show segment yeah it's just there was no tide that came in it was it was on you know high ground or whatever but i immediately thought oh is this what's going to happen because it was the creep show spot yeah um so I go, go ahead. I was gonna say then I think Yanoi comes and that's him, right? That comes and cuts the lock yeah. of his hair. Keeps keeps it as yeah. a memento if, or whatever. You, if you didn't need the confirmation, that was kind of <laughs> I, I, you know I almost didn't like that. It was almost too like, did you get it? No, okay, then we'll we'll throw yeah. this in there. You know, Yanoi. <laughs> I don't know. It, it was okay, I guess. I mean, yeah, it, I don't have a, too much of a problem with that. Well, I, I find that whole thing is very interesting. The Yanoi and Jack Sellers, uh, that that's sort of the homoerotic essence of the scene because I'm by no means like a war movie cinephile. Like I don't even remember what happens in Saving Private Ryan. But even even with that said, I feel like that this homoerotic feeling Yanoi has towards Bowie, as well as that opening scene where the the two soldiers are kind of on trial there or whatever for having relations. I have to imagine these aren't like common explorations in POW movies or war movies. Like, I, yeah. You know, that's not, that's not a genre that I usually watch to like, I, I have seen a few war films, but it, I don't know. I, I'm not a fan of war. So I hate watching it. It's yeah, just, fair enough. you know, like, I mean, I'm not a fan of like murdering either. I watch a lot of horror movies, but uh, there's some there, there's camp value to all of that. And the war ones, uh, and, and Mash has camp value, maybe. But uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not a war film fan, so well, I can't I think... really speak to that too much. But the ones that I've seen, this is probably the first one that's had that element. Yeah, and like I'm not a really a war movie guy either, and but I really enjoyed this movie. And I feel like yeah. all those the, the themes of regret and redemption and the whole the, the sexual tension. I feel like that's probably why I preferred this movie to most of the ones I've seen. Is because it's it's very unique. Well, it's layered, <clears throat> and it's layered so well. I mean, like that's a that initial scene or that initial storyline where there's the the two soldiers that are on trial for having relations. Right? It's a they make the Japanese soldier kill himself for having relations with, I think it's a Dutch prisoner, but right. you know, it doesn't happen quickly. It's not just like bang, bang. It, that, that story is it's introduced at the start of the movie, their little affair, whatever you want to call it. But then there's some scenes in between and eventually they get to the, uh, what's the self execution called? Uh, Sapuka. So they get to the Sapuka, they get to the, you know, the Japanese soldier suicide where everyone is forced to watch and the Dutch soldier had such an affection for the guy that he becomes enraged and he bit his own tongue off, right? Yeah. And what I found particularly brilliant was that this was a, a very good buildup and it was for very inconsequential characters. You know, we have Yanoi and Sergeant Hara and Jack Selliers and Mr. Lawrence and Captain Hicksley. They all have their own significant arcs in the movie and they're the main characters, but also like these two very minimal characters also had significant arcs. And 
it's for reasons like this that I don't think that David Bowie steals the spotlight of the movie. Like we were talking earlier, that could, that they very well ran the risk of that being the case, but because it's a very well-written movie and because there's many well-written stories amongst even the smallest of characters, it, yeah. it doesn't make you infatuated with Bowie the entire time. So I view this as like a war movie first and a, a David Bowie movie second. I, I didn't think that he was the, an elephant in the room like you run the risk of him being when you have him in the movie, especially in 1983 when he's just about to kick off Serious Moonlight and Let's Dance. Right. He's at the, the absolute peak of his stardom i thought this movie had such great characters and such great arcs outside of david bowie that it, it, it's just it's its own movie first a david bowie movie second i'm not sure if you saw it the same way like yeah i, I saw it, the man who fell to earth as a david bowie movie first and an art right. movie second this is the total opposite and yeah. i might like this movie even i would have to think about it if this is better than the man who fell to earth or not but i used to think that that was my favorite bowie movie for sure and after seeing this i'm like oh this is I a think great movie I think this is a better movie. I think the man who fell to earth is a better Bowie movie yeah, for the exact yeah. reason that you just said. It's like, yeah. yeah, it's almost like it's become the quintessential Bowie movie. The man who fell to earth. This is mm -hmm. just a, a good film. Like it's just solid. Um, and a part of the reason too, that I think it doesn't become the Bowie show is because he doesn't do the score, which apparently was right. never, uh, he was he wasn't interested in doing it, but the the filmmakers they had no like Oshima had no desire to have him do it. It was always going to be Ryuichi Sakamoto doing the score. It was kind of written with him doing the score in mind, which is really cool. Now um, he was like I don't know if he was a rising star or a big star, but he was like a very renowned musician himself. He was in a, a group called the Yellow Magic Orchestra in Japan. One of uh, he, it was a band, so it wasn't a huge orchestra. I think it was like three or four guys or something like that. But he uh, he had never scored a film before, and Oshima just kind of said, uh, okay, the how long do you need kind of thing? And I think it took him like three months or something like that, and he had no idea where to start. I, I saw an interview where he kind of talks about it a little bit, and he said that he was like, okay, I got to figure out at least, you know, what a score is like for a film. So uh, somebody, it may have been Oshima recommended he watch Citizen Kane and then go through Citizen Kane and then see like, this is how you score a film. So he did that. And it, it turns out pretty good. A lot of this stuff is kind of recycled throughout, but I like that style because each there's two specific songs that kind of come back throughout and they're, it's like, it, it, I don't know. There, it's a it's a weird feeling you get when you hear a familiar. It becomes almost like a theme of the movie, and when you come, when it comes in, it has a different kind of effect than a totally new song each time. Well, and I'm just finally getting into Twin Peaks. You've recommended it for me for ages. I'm finally watching it. I get that a lot in the show Twin Peaks. Oh yeah, it's the same. Yeah. It's, it's the beautifully same, scored. Yeah. It's the same few little segments of music throughout the entire i'm on the first season or something like that right every time audrey over. horn comes into the room you've got that kind of swanky upbeat weird music that comes in it's so well just oh the yeah oh i'm not going to get started on twin peaks <laughs> soundtrack but you you get it i'm, yeah, I'm sure yeah. some of our <laughs> listeners who have seen it you will you will understand that too and, and if you haven't seen twin peaks for the you know 10th time that i've said this on this podcast check it out Best time of year to do it. The perfect month. Yeah. That I yeah. was really into it for a while. And then 
we kind of stopped watching it. Uh, my girlfriend, I, we're going to, we're going to finish it. Very Well, very the first period. season is phenomenal. And then the first half of the second season is great. And then it kind of, I find it kind of, it gets a bit of, to become a bit of a, a slog towards the end. It gets really long, but it really picks up at the end of season two. And then everything that comes after that, the, the film, the prequel film and the third season or the return is unlike anything that's ever that I've ever seen before Lynch and his madness. Yeah. Enough about Twin Peaks again. Well, I was just going to mention one more thing. One more thing. Sure. I was was always uh, semi uh, familiar with the music just because I, there's an album I like by a a great group, great experimental group called Shoo Shoo. And they, they have an album called plays the music of Twin Peaks. Whereas you can imagine they play the music of Twin Peaks. Uh, Cool. So I would definitely, I mean, I would recommend that album, especially if you're a, a Twin Peaks fan. I should check that out. Definitely. Mm-hmm. David Lynch makes his own music too. I mean, there's the famous song that he wrote in Eraserhead, uh, Everything's Fine in Heaven, which is, it's been covered by like multi, like so many bands. I think Devo even used to do it live. Um, but yeah, he's got like his own albums and it's, it's actually kind of decent. Like it's, and he sings in his, in his voice like this and it's, oh, it's great. Oh, his, you- his voice is great. So there, uh, there is an album called, no, what is the album called? It's, I can't remember what it is, but it's a Flying Lotus album. Uh, great uh, kind of like trip hop slash hip hop slash, like Flying Lotus is just a great producer. He's produced a lot of great albums. And uh, on one of his albums, there's a interlude or a song called Fire Is Coming and, and David Lynch is featured on it. It's his talking voice at the intro. Oh, and it is... Uh, <laughs> It's very, it's kind of eerie. It's a it's a great kind of another great Halloween October type song. And uh, yeah, his, his voice in that song is amazing. I can see where he could very he could work as a as an audio guy, not just a video guy for sure. I I don't this this isn't a spoiler. So can I ask, have you been introduced to him in Twin Peaks yet? Where you're at? I don't think so. Okay. Well, when did, does he come in? Does he come in and like when does he come in? Uh, it's is later on. I think you, you maybe hear him on the phone before he comes in and be, he becomes, he's on screen. That's what I was going to say. I might've and just not realized it yet. It's it's he's Gordon Cole. His he's like, uh, he's Cooper's boss and uh, yeah. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Just wait till you get there. Yeah, It'll be awesome. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the score of uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence is uh, it's really good. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so Sakamoto said that, he, he thought like it happens at Christmas time. There's nothing Christmassy about this movie. That's about as Christmas as it is about <laughs> there, there's probably, well, yeah, I was going to say there's no war in this movie really aside from the setting. Like, you know, there's no, there's no combat. It's no, just, th- yeah. there's, there's a lot of violence in it. Uh, not, not too much gore. I, but I there's guess a, there's that one scene where they break into Bowie's cell. Yeah. And there's like a, but that's like a fight. Like there's no, like, yeah, there's, there's no, no like, tr- like uh, military right yeah uh and it's not a christmas movie either you know the title can kind of maybe throw you off i i wouldn't i would be very hesitant to name a movie merry christmas blank when it's not a christmas movie i had no idea what we were watching like we were like okay we're gonna do the movies we gotta watch merry christmas mr lawrence and let's try to line that up in december well yeah i kind of assumed that it might not be a christmas movie but i also didn't get from the title that it was going to be a prisoner of war movie like right. I didn't yeah. I, like you know I yeah. I kind of figured it maybe wasn't going to be a Christmas movie but that's yeah I had no idea what we were getting into I I actually had no idea I actually just put the movie on 
Like I just, I didn't really look at a cover. I just typed it in and, and pressed play and I was okay. I get it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's kind of, of, it's fun doing that sometimes. Yeah. But I, I, I can't remember the last time I've really watched a movie without at least reading like a little brief synopsis or at least seeing like a trailer or seeing the, the poster for the movie. I, I right. went into this really blind. So it was a bit of an adjustment. I think I actually had to kind of like rewatch the first like 20 or so minutes after I, okay, wait, now that I know what I've gotten into, let's really try to make sure I know what I'm watching here. Yeah. Yeah, so Sakamoto said that he did have Christmas in his mind when he was writing the score, though. Uh, he, he was thinking about bells. So I think so, like there's this, uh, the opening scene is one of the, the songs that's used uh, throughout the movie. And it, it's got a very metallic-y kind of sound. He didn't use literal bells. I think he used a synth of some sort to get that sound. But he, anyway, it was kind of interesting that he used that. I really like that song. It's really good. Um, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I thought it was scored wonderfully. It's very simple, but just very effective in what it did. And that it's like when something kind of happens in the movie or something's going to happen or they're building tension, the, the music comes in and it's familiar because you've heard it throughout the movie and it kind of just like enhances it or maybe just confirms that like what you're feeling, you're supposed to be feeling that or you're supposed to be anticipating that or you're supposed to be this is supposed to be happening because the, the song is on again. <laughs> so I thought it was done pretty well. I guess like the, the whole Christmas theme, it doesn't really like it. It only comes in for that one scene where they say Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, when the uh, Sergeant Hara decides not to kill Let's him. Yeah. Now he got a kick out of the idea because he was drunk of being Santa Claus. And I was thinking, Oh, maybe yeah. this is the British and the Japanese finding some common ground, but I don't, the Japanese, they're not, christian based culture are they uh no well there's probably christians living yeah, i guess there. yeah because i was thinking that is might that be one of those Shin, is that like shintoism is that the main religion there yeah I'm not sure. i want to say they're they're maybe buddhists as well maybe they're, they don't have a singular kind of like you know we're like in north america we're dominated by christianity but there's you know yeah. there's buddhists here and all that you know there's, i feel there's like every, there's every there's every ago. single religion in canada we're you know a very multicultural uh country but at first i was kind of thinking oh maybe that's them finding common ground like hey look we have a lot in common after all we don't have to you know kill each other we can celebrate christmas together that's kind of where i thought maybe they were going with that at first but then now on second thought it maybe doesn't really make sense if they're not a christian based i kind of thought that i kind of gathered that hara was almost mocking santa claus like look i'm santa claus i'm gonna make i'm I'm letting you go free like haha he's drunk and he's kind of i mean he's doing a, a good thing for them but he's kind of like making fun of the notion of santa claus maybe like look well, haha, i'm santa i'm letting you go merry christmas here's your gift you're not going to kill you and, and but i guess at the end of the day it is like christmas is a universal concept to me because i, right. I, I yeah. celebrate it but i'm not a religious person at all same yeah so you know the idea of being nice to even the enemy on christmas because it's just hey it's you know we got good spirits and you you know love everybody love your family love your friends love your name you know that concept yeah. of christmas that kind of warm nice cozy feeling i think is something that every culture would appreciate even jesus christ or not jesus christ i think everybody at the end of the day can appreciate not killing people you know <laughs> like that's <laughs> a, and just you know santa claus we're all happy like i think that's a very universal concept that they maybe found common ground on i don't know yeah yeah i think so yeah uh would you recommend this movie to 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 people yeah i would and you know people would uh, you're just 
recommending this because it's David yeah. Bowie. I'd be I, hesitant I, to for that I, reason. But. I would have to for those reasons I mentioned earlier, but why I think this is a movie in itself first and featuring David Bowie, not a Dave, you know, there's a difference between a David Bowie movie and a movie featuring David Bowie. I think this is just a really, really good movie featuring David Bowie. He doesn't steal the spotlight. He, he does in the scenes that he's in, but he's not always in yeah. it. And there's other great characters. It, it's, it depends on the person because I can see a lot of people hating this movie, but you know, like, film bros or whatever film buffs people that are really into movies i th- i think this is one that they would appreciate i, I would recommend this before the man who fell to earth because if i recommend the man who fell to earth i'd be accused of just liking it right because it's, david, bowie one. because it's david bowie yeah bowie kind of he has to act and and sing poorly in this one when they're singing around the camp they kind of like smuggle some uh Flowers. They, they, some flowers and some food i think too and bowie ends up just eating the flowers though <laughs> and uh yeah. And, but they're singing in that scene and he he sings poorly like on purpose and later on in the movie when they're lining up waiting for uh the the other commander to be executed he says i wish i could sing and i was thinking like <laughs> that's just funny See, to hear bowie say that's, that that's that's a comic relief line that once again it's like they they use all the advantages of having David Bowie at their disposal. Right. It was like, we can make this little, we can make this little joke. Look, David Bowie can't sing. He has a line about not singing. They really played to his strengths very well. And that, that scene too, where he's eating the flowers is great because he kind of gives them like this blank stare and he's got disproportionate pupils and he's, you know, eating flowers, which is this this absurd thing. And it's kind of like a very defiant, but also silly and lighthearted gesture. Yeah. I think that was very perfect for Bowie, this kind of very slender and, uh, you know, whimsical looking little Englishman. Like I said, they, they just play to his strengths very, very well in this movie. You can tell that, you know, when I read that they, they uh, wrote the character with David Bowie in mind, yeah, I, you can see it. Throughout the movie. Well executed. You can like yeah. anybody can say, "Oh, I'm going to write this, you know, movie about a, yeah. an astronaut who's really an alien, and we don't know if he's an alien or not." But it's David Bowie, so we kind of have this hand. Like, you know, anyone can yeah. do that, but they yeah. did it. They did it well without and it ma- being him. And Mayersburg and, and the, does it. Go ahead. Mayersburg does it like with like the mime. There's a lot of like improv scenes, like you were talking yeah. about, like the whole pretending to like that was all like they so they, well done. They wrote yeah. for him to to improvise also they they play to his uh yeah they just play to his strengths very, yeah very, very very well that scene too where he's singing and they're eating the flowers that that was a major kind of plot point they they find a, a radio in a canteen in the in the camp and they blame uh bowie and mr lawrence for it and that's why they were going to be executed yeah. when uh sergeant hara lets them go so that was kind of they said i think he just said that somebody else uh confessed or something and that's that's all it took to get them off because i don't i don't think they could prove that it was them but they were like well let's get rid of these guys we have to kill people anyway right the whole thing and mr lawrence freaks out on them right like this is yeah this is how you would rather have a punishment happen for the sake of a punishment of a punishment even if you knew that the person was like you know i'm innocent they're like Yeah. yeah but we're gonna do it anyway so they they do really uh highlight the stubbornness but I do think right, so it, yeah. it, it, it is definitely, it's made, it's a Japanese made movie. And is it very, it, it focuses on the Japanese in a very negative light. It does. Yeah. But I also do think that they show stubbornness on both sides and it kind of, you're led to believe that had this been the other way around, had this been a British 
POW camp with Uri probably would have happened too with yeah. Japanese prisoners and you know British guards instead. Yeah, the yeah. same thing was going to happen. Um, I, you know, they, they don't really explicitly say that, but I think you're you're kind of supposed to to believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, very solid movie. I enjoyed it. Uh, probably won't revisit it again for quite some time, but it was solid. I, you know, I was, I was really sick. I was at, it was my worst day when I was watching it. I I was camping down in my basement and I I had to restart it once. And I was kind of going like, when you're rewatching something, cause you fell asleep halfway through, you're going like, Mm. Oh God, like, am I going to enjoy this? And then I found myself really into it. And yeah, it was just, it's a good time. Or it's not, it's not a good time. That's maybe not the best way to describe this movie. It's far from that, but it was a, it was a very entertaining movie. And yeah, I'd, I think I would recommend it. I wasn't sure if I was going to say like, yeah, everybody's got to see this movie. And I'm still not sure if like, like you said, it might depend on the person, if you'd recommend it or not. Like it'd have to be someone who's really into movies. Yeah. Um, I think because it's not exciting in any way it's not there's very little action like aside from you know that one little fight where he's Bowie's almost executed and he he escapes and then he doesn't escape he gets confronted by Yanoi who says like fight me and if you fight me if you if you win you'll go and Bowie puts his sword down he doesn't want to fight for his life which was interesting but yeah so it's yeah it's it's a dialogue heavy it's uh carried not by action carried by underlying themes like suppressed homosexuality carried by themes of guilt guilt Guilt. redemption regret stubbornness stubbornness. it's it's a very much if you're into movies that you know rely heavily on on underlying themes you'll really appreciate this movie i think because there's so many of them and they're all done very well too. I mean, it's just one, you can have themes in a movie and still be a shitty movie, but this movie executes as well. So I would, I would recommend it to most, to most movie fans. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't advertise it as David Bowie. I'd say, watch this movie. It's called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. It's a prisoner of war movie. Just happens to have this really awesome (laughs) guy in it (laughs) that, you know, we've spent upwards of, I don't know about, 60 hours now talking about and we're only halfway through his career Mm. on that uh i believe that we are if you count tin machine one and two and toy which i think we're obviously going to cover all of those uh things in our show we've from studio album purposes we are into the second half of our show now we're entering the back nine with tonight how many albums does he have? Like 26 or something like that? I think, yeah, solo albums. But then if you count like oh, Toy yeah. and Tin Machine and 30, Tin Machine maybe. 2, it's it's upwards of that. Yeah, No Plan. Like we'll probably do a, a, an episode on No Plan later on. Yeah, it's uh, we're, we're, we're kind of like entering the back nine now. Before we get to tonight, though, we will do uh, the Serious Moonlight Tour. I guess that'll be our next episode. Hopefully... So- Go ahead. Well, and on that note, this movie was shot before Serious Moonlight, correct? I yeah. And then did it kind of come out during the tour? Well, I I know that this and The Hunger debuted at the Cannes Film Festival in '83. I'm not sure when it reached theaters. Uh, it pro- probably during, like I would guess, like 
mid to late 83. I, I don't know when it was theatrically released. It just seems like there's a an awful lot of momentum for David Bowie yeah. in this period. Yeah, like right. Yeah. Two, two movies hitting the theaters. And I believe this one probably did better at the box office than The Hunger. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I, maybe it did. I'm not sure how I, I'm it did not sure. I'm just, I'm just Japan. guessing because I feel, ah, oh, but Susan Sarandon, oh, maybe the other one did better because Susan Sarandon is a big get too. There's, you know. W- without looking, I would just guess that this one did better in Japan and The Hunger yeah. did better in, well, I don't think The Hunger did really that great overall. 990 it, cr- million Japanese yen. What's that in American dollars? This one only is that, two- yeah, adjusted to 1983 inflation. Yeah. <laughs> Quickly pull that. <laughs> but I mean, all these details are important. Just point being, you know, he's got the serious Moonlight Tour is about to kick off. His highest selling album is about to debut he's got these movies coming out like i mean this is this is the year of bowie this is 1983 wow yeah definitely okay so that'll be it until next time when we do the serious moonlight tour thanks for listening i'm jesse and i'm john catch you there catch you later catch you there i was gonna say i was gonna say next time and it came out nearer later (laughs) okay